Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming. I'm Nick Rawlins. I'm the Pro Vice Chancellor for Development and External Affairs. Uh, mostly what I'm going to do actually is just introduce the other speakers, which is always the nicer way to do things. Um, but what we will talk about uh, is going to be the way in which the current changes, particularly in the way that education is funded, are going to affect what we do, but we want to place that in not just a national, but ultimately in an international context. So the panel are Professor Sir David Watson, who is the principal of Green Templeton College, who is a professor of higher education here and was professor of higher education management at the Institute of Education at the University of London and was vice-chancellor of the University of Brighton. Um, he is going to place Oxford, if you like, in both a national context, but also say, well, what does it take to make it into the international context? Then the next speaker will be Lauren Griffith, who is the acting head of, uh, acting director of uh, international strategy here. Uh, Lauren, I hope, will then tell us, he'll pick up, if you like, the baton from Sir David and tell us what we're really going to do and what the challenges are and how we're going to do it. Then we will pass you over to Mike Nicholson, who's in charge of undergraduate admissions, which, by the demographics that we work with, will be largely UK, but not exclusively UK-centred. And then we'll pass you to Ben Plummer-Powell, who will talk about the overall strategy for funding students. So Lauren was, uh, is here, actually. We're very lucky to have him in that he could perfectly well have stayed on at McKinsey, so we've got him to organize us instead. Uh, he was a management consultant at McKinsey, and he's been at the London, Boston, Delhi, New York, and Los Angeles offices, so he's got excellent contacts. He was also... Um, he also worked for Barack Obama's transition team, and I don't know if he's going to have to end up working for mine. It depends how soon they kick me out. Um, Mike Nicholson has been director of undergraduate admissions here since 2006, and, uh, and uh, has served on the board of directors at the Universities and College Admission Service, national chair of the Higher Education Liaison Officers Association, and is absolutely key in delivering the way in which we have responded to the changes in the funding structure. And Ben Plummer-Powell, 10 years at Warwick, where he started off in admissions and international marketing. Then he became the Director of Development and Alumni Relations at the Warwick Business School, uh, including the international side of that. He moved to Oxford just over a year ago, and given what he has to do, which is to find out ways to... Uh, gather student support. He really picked his time. So I think at the, the one thing we can certainly say about Ben is he knows when to pick up uh, a challenge. Um, here are the things that I think are key challenges for us. The one is, as I've already said, the change to the undergraduate fee structure. The second, which I think has been overlooked, is the knock-on consequences of that for graduate support. How are you going to persuade people who may be carrying £50,000 worth of loans, that it's worth their while to stay on and fund some more higher education. There's been effectively a freezing of research funding, and freezing, of course, usually means that the real value is going to go down. So that's an issue for us. 
We think there's particular pressure on the humanities. As the fees for coming to Oxford, or indeed UK universities, generally go up, then international competition becomes more and more important. It's cheaper to go to Dalhousie than it is to go to a number of universities in the UK, and Dalhousie is a good place, except for the summer, uh, except for the winters, I suppose, in particular, and the rain in the summer. Um, and we're going to have a capital replenishment problem. How are we going to invest in the buildings we need next? We've got lots of advantages, and I've listed some. Colleges are an enormous advantage for us. We've got extraordinary physical assets, by which I mean buildings, museums, libraries, laboratories, and some of those things matter both to alumni and to non-alumni. They're attractive, I hope, to all parties. And we've also got fantastic intellectual capital. We've got amazing undergraduates, and it goes right through, I think, to amazing professors. We've got the tutorial system, which is both a key strength and also a very significant cost. We've got the college affiliations, the size of the colleges, and the way in which they give people links with one another and with their colleges that last all their lives. I started today with a meeting at University College, and it was packed with people who were there because Univ meant something to them that I think it would be very hard to establish in a much bigger uh, organisation. So colleges, fantastically important for alumni relations and the way in which people associate themselves with one another and the place. We've got the UK's best alumni participation rate. If you take the university as a whole, 16.1% of alumni contributed something to the university last year. I think Cambridge is next best at 11%, and then you go well down into single figures. We've got extremely compelling new access agreements, and it's possible that Mike Nicholson will touch on some of those. We have, and I have reason to thank it every day, the Oxford University Press, which is an extraordinary asset to this university and an extraordinary international brand leader for us. We've got very well-managed finances, so it's no longer true that people come along and say, well, why should I ever give you money? Because I obviously manage it well myself or I wouldn't have any to give away. If I give it to you, you'll just waste it. That's no longer something that people say. And I think really importantly, like every other university in England, there's an increased public recognition of student needs. People used to say, well, why do they need anything? Well, people don't usually ask that now. It's obvious. They really do need something. So I'm sure that you'll be able to think of other challenges. I'm sure you'll be able to think of other advantages. I've asked each speaker to restrict themselves to four slides and five minutes. When you ask questions, I'll ask each of you to restrict yourself to 20 seconds. Just think of me as a particularly grumpy tutor, but one who's awake. <laughs> and I'll pass over to Sir David Watson. Good morning, everybody. Uh, this is a, a brutal regime, five minutes and uh, four slides, and I have a clock at the back of the room which I can just about see. Um, I've been asked to set the context for our discussion, and I want to do it by oper offering a proposition and a corollary to that proposition. The proposition is that higher education is a much more complex and interrelated system than we often assume. It's not always the case that the institutional frame of analysis or unit of analysis is the most sensible for us to adopt. And the corollary to that is that Oxford 
has a distinctive and important role in the UK system, but it also has interests in and responsibilities towards the effectiveness of the rest of the system. Um, so I'm going to try to explain that approach with really three angles of inquiry. The first is about students. If you want to understand what's happened to UK higher education in the last quarter of a century or more, this is the one slide you need. I think this, is, this slide could just have discuss at the bottom of it. It shows participation in our system, in the UK, by level and mode of study. And the really important thing here is that a majority of students participating in our system are not on full-time first degrees. And you'll see right at the top that proportionately, easily the fastest growing area has been postgraduate taught study. And this is a phenomenon that occurs all around the world. Expansion of first cycle education leads to an expansion of second cycle education. When you come to a point where a significant number, for example, of new workforce entrants are graduates, where they go from there becomes enormously important in terms of their careers and their, and their further development. So the red wave at the bottom is full-time first-degree uh, students. The blue wave, right at the very top, is part-time postgraduate-taught students. These are often people in work pursuing further vocational and professional qualifications. And there are some other interesting slices in the middle. For example, the other undergraduate area. These are courses that were originally um, high national diplomas, for example, then became foundation degrees. For a large number of our working force, especially people who wear uniforms, people in the armed forces, teaching assistants, care assistants, and so on, that is how they access their, their higher education. So first of all, we have to look at what our contribution is, particularly to that set of developments. And at Oxford, there's a small number of those waves on which we focus particularly. But the health of what we do does relate to the health of what everybody else is doing. That's one perspective. Second perspective is around institutions. Um, there is a kind of game in the literature around higher education which is this sort of Weberian ideal typical game, trying to find out what the key types of institution are in evolutionary terms. And I think you would be able to put particular institutions against any one of those seven uh, options there. The International Research University, the university that focuses particularly on professional and vocational qualifications, curriculum innovation universities, a lot of new foundations, for example, in the 60s, like Sussex, focused on looking at the curriculum in a different way. Distance and open learning, we have a world-leading pioneer there in the Open University. The interesting uh, phase uh, of development there has been the way that that has shifted from television to the internet as a means of, 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 of teaching and learning. The small college, the kind of Burton Clark style liberal arts college, the specialised single-subject institu uh, single institution, like a conservatoire or, or some of the um, specialised engineering institutions. The new arrival in the early 21st century is not the private university, because all around the world, those first six have been colonised by um, private investment, usually private not-for-profit investment. The new arrival is the for-profit corporation. 
a recognition that this is another part of the knowledge economy from which shareholders might gain, might gain value. Now that is a, a Weberian exercise. I can tell you that most universities, most substantial universities at the, be at the beginning of the 21st century are some mix of those. We have elements of several of those buried within um, our university, but broadly, Oxford is unambiguously a world-leading apex institution. It's one of our top research-intensive universities within the system. And you can measure that simply by looking at the amount of disposable resource we have. And how we apply that resource responsibly is really a kind of leitmotif of, I think, the points that Nick was making um, at the beginning. At Oxford, we have basically around £40,000 a year to invest in an infrastructure um, per student. At Cambridge, it's much larger. Adding the college's income uh, pushes this up from fi to 51 in Oxford to 71 in, um, uh, in Cambridge. There is an equivalent in Cambridge to the Oxford University Press. It's called Trinity College. And the, en the enormous um, um, uh, wealth of Trinity College um, uh, sits there. Um, in the early 1990s, uh, my collaborator Rachel Bowden and I invented a thing called the Prosperity Index, where we actually looked at all the income achieved by all the British universities, divided it by the number of full-time equivalent students, and we were able to predict the Times League table to 0.92. Every institution was in five places of where it should be. This is, of course, a circular argument, but it carries within it, with it responsibility. Uh, my third and final perspective is about league tables, and this may provide a little bit of a, of a bridge into what Lauren will say. International, whole institution league tables are a 21st century phenomenon. There have been national and there have been subject-based league tables for over a half a century in various jurisdictions. But the very first international whole institution league table came out, does anybody know in which year? Anybody want to make a guess at that? As recently as 2003 with the Shanghai Zhao Tong um, um, first shot at an international league table. There are two important points to make about international league tables. First, they are statistically weak to the point of irresponsibility. They just don't work for various reasons I could go into if, if, if that comes up later on in, 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 in questions. But the second most important point is that they have been taken up by leading institutions and by governments as a kind of virility symbol. How far are, how many institutions, for example, does the UK have in the top 100? Or where do we sit in, in the top 10? Now, the reason that this is dangerous is that they only measure certain things. And they basically measure these things that are down uh, my left-hand list. These are the things that count. And all of the elements in, for example, Shanghai Tong or the Times Higher League table that claim not to be about research are, in fact, indirectly about research. A lot of the teaching measures are around um, uh, the number of postgraduate students. A lot of the reputational measures are in effect indirectly around the reputation of research. Oxford does extremely well down all of this left-hand left side. We do have very powerful graduate destinations. We have a lot of media interest in what we do. We have a wonderful infrastructure. We are successful, not least in this school, in terms of recruiting those 
classes of international students who really do add to reputation. And incidentally, high-volume undergraduate international recruitment has almost become a sign of weakness now rather than a sign of strength. But there are other very important things in a university mission, and there are other very important things that relate to the success of a higher education system overall. And those are mostly the things listed down the right. The paradox here is that you'll often have national higher education strategies that talk about all of these things down the right-hand side. They talk about teaching quality, social mobility, links between universities and communities and, and business, serving rural as well as metropolitan interests, very few rural interests, uh, rural institutions in the top 200 of Shanghai Xiaotong, for example, links with other public services, the public interest, and so on. The proposition I want to leave you with is that as we go forward as a, a very powerful apex institution, looked up to in many respects by the rest of the system, we need to have some care about these things in the right-hand list, as well as the things which are low-hanging fruit, in essence, for Oxford in the left-hand list. Thank you very much. Hello, good morning. Pleasure to see you all here today. There's an awful lot that one could say about international student recruitment and the international student presence at Oxford. Um, I'm going to say a bit about that broader context, but mostly focus my attention on the more specific question of the impact of 9,000 pound fees on our ability to attract, attract in particular non-UK EU students. But first, a bit of background before I get to this chart and one more, and only one more, that I have to share with you. Um, there's been relatively little attention paid to the effect on international students of the rise in fees. An enormous amount, rightly so, uh, of attention has been paid to the effects on access and enrollment um, for UK students as a result of the rise in fees. But it's worth remembering that the rise also has implications for international students, in particular EU students, who will face the same fees the same loans, and in fact, at Oxford, um, have access to the same bursary scheme that UK students will have. Um, international students here are a meaningful minority of the undergraduate population, 15% of the undergraduates as a whole, 7% of the um, undergraduate population from the EU, about 8% from overseas. Um, and at the postgraduate level, about which I, I will not say much, it's a much greater percentage, 61% of our students are international, including both EU and overseas. We can talk about that more in the question and answer session if you're interested, because that group also will be indirectly, in effect, uh, indirectly affected for reasons that Nick mentioned at the, at the outset. So to our question, how will Oxford's ability to attract the very best international students be affected by the fees rise? Well, for overseas students, uh, the fees will not change. Overseas students, as you probably will know, have paid higher fees than UK and EU undergraduates for some time. And so we're likely to see a relatively small effect, probably not no effect, because the press that has surrounded the increase in fees uh, here in the UK also reaches abroad and creates a general impression that education is getting more expensive in the UK. I'm concerned that that may scare off some number of students, although I expect that the that the effects, especially for a place like Oxford, will be relatively minimal. For EU students, I think it's a more complex question. As I mentioned, they too will face uh, a much higher uh, 
much more stringent fee regime. And they, unlike UK students, have the option of staying home and studying at uh, increasingly good universities for much, much less money. Um, so what we did uh, in our team was to ask, what do historical precedents tell us about the likely response of EU applicants uh, given a fee rise? Um, the first place to look is, well, how have they responded as fees have risen at Oxford uh, in the last number of years? And in this chart, you'll see the blue line is the, uh, the cost of coming here, uh, fees and living costs at Oxford since 1996. It's going up and up. Um, and the red line, and then with the stacked, the stacked bars above it, the green and purple, are the number of new entrants from the EU outside the UK at Oxford. And of course, the basic message of this, which is the important thing, is that fees have gone up and the number of students has gone up. So to date, the fee rises that we've seen from relatively low amounts to a moderate amount at you know, 3,300 or so plus living costs has not um, hampered, or at least it has not crippled our ability to attract students from the EU. However, there's some reason for concern here because uh, if you look historically in the UK, uh, we have seen when fees go up dramatically, a real response. Again, the red line shows costs, in this case, the cost for overseas students, um, international students at all UK universities, going back to 1975 and showing it through 1990. Some of you will recall that in 1980, um, full cost fees were introduced for overseas students, and that's the huge rise in the red line. And then, uh, in the early 80s, something called the PIM package was introduced, which reduced the real cost to students of those fees. It came back down to the same level and then, in fact, declined in real terms since then. The blue bars are uh, overseas student new entrants at UK universities. There's a big effect, a 34% drop from the height in 1978 to the trough in 1981. Pretty clear evidence that that extent of fee increase had a real effect on the number of applications and in fact, the number of students who came to UK universities. So that leads us to the question of, well, at Oxford, how will our ability to attract the very best EU students be affected uh, by a similarly precipitous rise in fees? Hard to say, because there are factors pushing in a number of different directions, and we can talk more about those if you'd like. Um, on the one hand, we're not talking about out-of-pocket payments when people first arrive. EU students will have loans. Um, on the other hand, uh, those loans will have to be paid back, and those who are more clued in will realize that those costs are real, just deferred. Um, the Oxford brand ought to insulate us uh, to a greater extent than many universities are insulated, I would think, from uh, a diminution in the, in the number and quality of our applicants from the EU. But um, Many of our EU students are not currently on the loan scheme. In fact, they're paying out of pocket when they start. So those people will be hit especially hard by a fee increase. So as you can tell, there's sort of, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, arguments here. The final thing to mention is just to emphasize what I said earlier, which is that in continental Europe, universities are getting increasingly good. The German government in particular, with its excellence initiative, is pumping a lot of money into higher education at the very time that our government is pulling back funding. And universities um, in Germany are getting better and better. The, the vice chancellor and I and others were in Germany last week uh, and saw improvements 
uh, universities like Heidelberg, which has been good for a long time, and um, universities that have not been so great in recent decades but are really stepping up with the excellence initiative like Humboldt University in Berlin. And I'm concerned that some of our excellent German students, and we have many, many here, may choose to stay at home and pay nothing or pay a thousand pounds to study at an increasingly good university, which, by the way, may teach them in English. So all of this underscores our need to do a couple of things. One is to communicate clearly about the fact that we're off, that students will pay, will pay back loans and will not pay out of pocket, a misconception that many may have when they hear 9,000 pound fees. The second is to say that at Oxford, EU students will be eligible for the same bursaries that, undergraduate, that home undergraduates will be eligible for. And it also underscores the need to redouble our efforts both to reach out and, and publicize what's special about Oxford and to raise funds for scholarships for students because um, it's an area where we're relatively weak compared to our US peers in particular. Some of you will know that the Ivy League institutions offer um, need-blind financial aid to all international students, so, uh, as well as for domestic students. So if you're, again, if you're a top and middle-income German applicant, you can go to Harvard for less money significantly than it will cost you to come to Oxford. And that's something that, over time, we really need to change. Thanks. Uh, the good news is absolutely no PowerPoints from me. Um, there you go. Okay, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, or just good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is Mike Nicholson. I'm the university's director of undergraduate admissions. Um, my aim is to try and, first of all, terrify you with what we face and then maybe uh, lift the mood a little bit by talking about what advantages... Uh, Oxford may have to try and offset uh, the national political situation we find ourselves in, particularly with regard to undergraduate admissions. Firstly, um, we've got to remind ourselves, I think, of what Oxford is trying to achieve with admissions. We are trying to attract the best applicants irrespective of background. And that's a very important thing to remember because we have, within our current arrangements, a fair bit of autonomy on how we select and identify those students. Unfortunately, in my view... We spend a lot more time now coping with political and media scrutiny of our operation, which puts in the place of our academic uh, selectivity uh, a range of barriers which may suggest that actually we aren't the best people suited to identify who should be studying at Oxford. We also, uh, I think, have a lot of issues around um, student support. Uh, Lauren's already uh, indicated the situation that most of our undergraduate applicants will find themselves in in the coming year. And it's very important, I think, at Oxford for us to remember that we are taking a commitment to those students, or giving a commitment to those students we admit, that we are trying to ensure that they can get through the course and succeed in their studies. We've invested a lot of time and uh, effort in identifying students who we think have the greatest potential to succeed. And the last thing that we want to have happen is those students fail to complete their degree because of financial concerns and pressures that they find themselves under. We also, uh, as a university, are working in an environment where we have to work with students who maybe haven't had an awful lot of support or encouragement to succeed or even apply to Oxford. And also in an environment where we are being expected, to some extent, to make up for the deficiencies 
in the education system as it currently stands. There have been plenty of studies recently to suggest that the real issue around where students end up in society, their social mobility is pretty much conditioned by the time they even start school. And the idea that the University of Oxford can somehow, after 15 or 16 years of education, that students will have had make up for everything that they've encountered is a very difficult one to try, uh, a very difficult uh, issue for us to square. And this is, of course, being put on all higher education institutions. It's not just an Oxford issue. Just to give you an idea of how that actually pans out, if I was really being um, minimalist in my approach to student recruitment and access, I could send staff from the university out to around about eight schools in the UK. Between the 1,600 students at those eight schools, we would probably have in that audience of, of students 850 who will get at least five A stars at GCSE. At the other extreme, I could send staff from the university around 1,900 schools, talk to a quarter of a million students, and from those quarter of a million students, we would get 850 who managed to achieve five A stars or better at GCSE. So there is vast issues that we have to face on the students who are applying to us and the experiences that they have. And in that environment, uh, the resources that we put into access and the focus that we put on our outreach initiatives are very, very important. And as a university, despite what you may feel from reading the media, we put more effort in than pretty much any university. In fact, I would guarantee any university in the country Last year, staff from the university's outreach teams, whether they be in colleges or in departments or in the Central University Undergraduate Admissions Office, visited 80% of schools in the UK. Um, and of those schools, 80% of those schools were schools in the state sector. When you remember that about 20% of schools in the UK produce no students in any given year who will achieve three grade A's, which is the minimum to make a competitive application to Oxford we're pretty much covering all of the available ground and engaging with most of the potential applicants. So, with those uh, woes in front of you, uh, what strengths do we have in the coming few years? Well, firstly, we maintain our reputation. David's already alluded to the issues around uh, international um, league tables. None of the factors on the international league tables have any bearing, frankly, on undergraduate education. Unless, of course, you do, as Oxford does, believe very strongly that research, reputation and excellence really should carry through to undergraduate teaching and the student experience. Secondly, uh, we provide a very personalised and tailored learning experience for our students and nobody, with maybe the exception of Cambridge, can offer that anywhere in the world. We have a very dedicated and very committed group of staff, alumni and students. There are no end of people who are prepared to put their time and their energies into making Oxford a world-class university and in the terms of admissions, putting their time and energy into making a system that um, is, is complicated by its very demands. We're trying to identify students who come from all sorts of different backgrounds, but they put their time and their effort into making that function effectively. And to give you an idea of what that actually means, last year we calculated that in the 10 days that we conduct undergraduate interviews, around about 1,600 academic staff from across the university, plus a whole bevy of support staff, between them organised and conducted 24,000 interviews for potential applicants. Now, if you try to suggest that we're not putting effort into identifying and uh, tailoring our support to students, that's a statistic I suggest that uh, gives lie to that. 
Uh, we also, of course, have um, very strong records of outcomes for our graduates. Students who come to Oxford do have opportunities to progress and make a difference in society. And the Oxford education is therefore still a very valuable commodity uh, and is very worthwhile. And even with £9,000 fees, I think many students still see that as a small price to pay for the opportunities that Oxford offers. If I'm being perfectly honest with you, every time yet another university said they were going to charge £9,000 fees, my heart leapt because it makes it much easier to demonstrate that £9,000 for an Oxford education is a very, very worthwhile thing to have in the current educational environment. We have, as a university, an excellent record for retention, and I think one of the things that we often fail to um, bang on about enough is the fact that only about 1% of our students fail to complete their undergraduate course. If we're thinking about making a difference in improving access and social mobility, surely it's better that the students who actually start on a course complete the course than often what happens in universities that have a very good record for access where very few students or a significant number of students don't actually see the degree through. And I think, again, we've got to recognise that at last maybe one of the things the government is doing is looking at retention issues in higher education. And one of the consequences for Oxford of putting the resources into student selection is we end up with students who we think and generally do succeed here in what is a very different type of education environment to the one that they've probably previously experienced. And then finally, and maybe this very uh, appropriate thing to say to a group of alumni and just before Ben speaks, we are, as a university, in a very fortunate position that we can be innovative and we can take risks and try things out that maybe other universities would shy away from. And probably the best example of that, as far as access is concerned, is the unique summer schools that we've been running now. We've just had our second year. We've now got, obviously, some information on the students who participated <coughs> in the first year. Just to remind you, Unique is the largest summer school programme of any British university. We ultimately hope to have 1,000 students a year coming to the university to do one-week-long free academic programmes between lower and upper six. So the idea is for students to get a very close exposure to what it's like to be an Oxford undergraduate. The students are all drawn from state schools, and there's a very strong bias in favour of students from schools with very limited tradition and experience of sending students to Oxford or being successful in the admissions process. The first year students who uh, came in 2010, we had 504 students on the programme spread over 20 different academic uh, programmes. 100 of those students came from the lowest socioeconomic groups in the country. 156 of those students came from schools with uh, less than two students a year achieving three grade A's at A level. And 443 of those students were from schools with limited tradition or experience of sending candidates to Oxford. Of those 504 students, uh, 347, that's almost 70%, made an application to Oxford last year, and 137 of them gained offers. In addition, a further 35 gained offers at Cambridge. So over 40% of the students gained offers from Oxbridge. Now, that's an incredible statistic when you bear in mind that less than 20% of our current applicant pool in total will receive an offer. So the unique programme students are more than double likely to get an offer compared to the average applicant to Oxford. Of the students who received offers, 22 were receiving uh, education maintenance allowances. 55% of the students uh, were from uh, schools with limited tradition and experience of applying to Oxford. And 43 of the students were to, uh, went to schools where less than two students a year achieved three grade A's. So 
We've got programmes that work. We've got programmes that can certainly allow us to meet the challenges that the government are putting on us on regard, with regard to access. Um, to maintain that sort of activity, we need the continued support of alumni, of the staff, and of our current students. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, alumni and friends. Professor Rawlins has already outlined the clear need uh, in terms of student support across the collegiate university. And this, of course, is not only the areas that Mike has just been detailing in terms of our access work and in terms of our undergraduate bursaries that will indeed, as Lauren referenced, include EU students. But of course, it does include graduate students as well. At Oxford, we have a clear commitment across colleges and across departments to attract the very best students from across the globe to study at all levels, regardless of background or circumstance. But the figures quickly add up in terms of what that takes in real terms to be able to deliver that. In terms of our bursary provision at the moment, we are looking at spending around £10 million a year to provide that provision. At graduate level, there is a stark figure that we are currently negotiating at around £100 million is what would be needed to be spent each year to fully support our 7,000-strong graduate population. With increased government cuts that have been referenced and with uncertainty that lies ahead, Increasingly, we are looking to our alumni, our friends, and organisations from around the world to be able to support this vital area. It is therefore a privilege to be leading the work for the University of Student Support within the Oxford Thinking Campaign and trying to ensure that these opportunities are made available to the brightest and to the greatest from across the globe, including, of course, here in the UK. Rather than to go into what are we doing in relation to our fundraising efforts, although I would like to say at this stage increasingly we are looking to a number of areas to support that, I thought it would be nice to share with you this morning, uh, and particularly bearing in mind being the final speaker is never the best position to be in, to actually share the impact that some of our fundraising and some of our bursary and scholarship provision is making. I have a, film, a few film clips here for you with some of our graduate scholars actually speaking. They're from a number of scholarship programmes that we have been fundraising for and they detail the impact that it is making on their lives but vitally their plans for the future. What does their Oxford experience mean and where do they want to take that? There's a brief introduction from Dr. Sally Mapstone, who's Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Education here at Oxford. So let me put that on for you now. I have 15 seconds left to keep you to schedule, and I think, therefore, that what I should do is thank the four speakers, thank all of you for being here, and thank you very much for your questions, and hope that the rest of the day goes really well. Keep out of the rain, I think. So thank you. <laughs>